Welcome back to another edition of the ASAP Equal Podcast. I'm your host, as always, Dr. Jason Woods. Today's guest is Dr. William Moira, who is an associate professor of emergency medicine and neurology at the University of Michigan and specifically specializes in stroke and is here today to talk about the process of transferring a patient with stroke and some experience that they've had in some other local hospitals about how to divide resources, what institution to go to, and how exactly to figure out who needs to go where for what therapies at what point in their stroke treatment process. There's a couple of really good references for this that I'll list in the show notes, but I do also want to let you know that the original lecture for this also included some slides, and some of his discussion can't really be fully converted to audio only, so you hear some references to the visuals. I'll try to describe what he's showing when that happens, but I also recommend that you head to the ASAP Equal website, and you can take a look at the slides from this presentation. That link will also be in the show notes. All right, Dr. Moyer, take it away. It is a pleasure to be presenting on this forum, and thank you to the American College of Emergency Physicians for the opportunity to share some insights about how to improve the care of stroke patients for emergency physicians. So broadly, I want to cover about four things today. And we're thinking about stroke patients who require transfer for definitive care, primarily those with ischemic stroke. So first, we want to review the biological rationale for rapid transfer and why it matters. What is the medicine that underpins our need to get patients to the right place at the right time? Briefly review some of the organizations of systems of acute stroke care. Next, I will give you some methods for potential door-in, door-out time reduction and thinking about this from the perspective of the transferring hospital, where there may be key aspects that could be a good part of a protocol you are setting up locally and describe a bit of current research in this area that is being done. In this next section, Dr. Moyer was going to talk about a graph and a slide that he has that's from the meta-analysis published in 2016 in JAMA, and that's listed in the show notes. So this slide represents a meta-analysis of endovascular thrombectomy trials and outcomes after ischemic stroke. And the general pattern of the curve on the left shows that the longer it takes to treat a stroke patient with thrombectomy, the less benefit that that patient is seeing, which provides an impetus to us as emergency physicians to try to do everything we can to get patients quickly. Now, There have been additional studies that have looked at patients who may benefit from thrombectomy in even longer time windows, but it's important to note that every patient's biology may vary and that while some patients may still qualify for thrombectomy in extended windows, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't be doing everything we can to make that thrombectomy happen as early as possible. Because even with these additional windows, if a patient has good collaterals, they could ultimately fail. So even though there may be more time for reperfusion in some cases, there may be even less time for reperfusion in other cases. So it is incumbent on us to move the patients as quickly as possible to a center that can help establish reperfusion. The panel on the right looks at these randomized trials. And these were randomized trials that were looking at thrombectomy versus medical therapy alone, trials such as Mr. Clean and and other trials that really transformed acute stroke care and moved things towards really emphasizing the importance of getting patients onto thrombectomy for large vessel occlusions, particularly when presenting within six hours. And you can see that these are all triangles on the right, knowing that 
The difference between endovascular therapy and medical therapy alone, which is usually intravenous TPA, shrinks over time in terms of the probability of getting into each of these states. And you can look at this top triangle is really looking at mortality, your likelihood of having an MRS of five or less. And the bottom is, is looking at having an absolutely perfect outcome. The other triangles are looking at intermediate states of disability, which are all important. And basically, all of these are, are triangles. So the faster that you can get a patient to a thrombectomy center, the greater the likelihood they are going to have a improved neurological outcome. One of the things that is an emerging area of research is the choice of thrombolytic. And I will say that in the US, the only FDA-approved thrombolytic is Alteplase. However, in studies that occurred outside the US in Australia, Canada, and some of Europe, they looked at tenecteplase. And this has been studied in some US trials as well. But tenecteplase can offer some potential advantages to make the process of transferring patients simpler. And it's something that I, I hope to see US systems of care move towards. Tenecteplase is simpler to infuse. You only give a single bolus dose in contrast to alteplase, which requires a bolus and a one-hour infusion. In these studies, Stendia-ATNK and Extendia-ATNK Part 2 actually showed that there were better outcomes. These were all people with large vessel occlusions for which there was an intent to move on to a mechanical thrombectomy. But the results were better with TNK. So there was a very low likelihood that alteplase was superior, although it's traditional and there is a longer track record with alteplase. And there have been some heated discussions at the stroke meeting uh, regarding whether we have enough evidence now to, to move to TNK for a broader set of stroke patients. In my clinical experience, I have seen most of the time alteplase goes fine, but there are a lot of steps that are involved in administering alteplase in terms of preparing the bolus, preparing the fusion, making sure that there is sufficient tubing, making sure that there is some fluid to push the extra alteplase through the tubing at the end, there are so many steps and so many places where things can potentially go wrong. When you throw in attempting to move that patient from one health system to another via an ambulance that perhaps has different pumps, you can see that you're already creating a potential delay in getting that patient to a definitive care center. With there being really no evidence that TNK is inferior, it brings up a question as to why uh, sites that are typically doing a drip and ship to a other thrombectomy center should not be considering using TNK. And again, I think it is reasonable for centers at this point in time to be cautious until there are more national guidelines on this. But I think this is something that represents potential low-hanging fruit for making transfers more simple. It truly is easier to transfer a stroke patient if, if the paramedics who are transferring the patient don't have to worry about a new you know, an infusion pump going. And I think in many places, the default is simply to wait until that infusion is done before patients move, which is too bad and represents a, a potential opportunity to reduce the time to transfer for sites that are doing drip and ship. So as I, as I mentioned, the first Extend IATNK study showed that the 0.25 milligram per kilogram dose was better than about 200 patients showing a median modified Rankine score of two versus three. And then in the second, they showed that using an even higher dose didn't do even better, so that there had been some residual uncertainty in the exact dose that was most effective for TNK in the prior study. And interestingly, of those patients who were going to thrombectomy, 
the number that achieved good reperfusion or reperfusion of at least 50% of the vessel at the time of the, the next procedure when angiography was going was, was very similar across those groups. But Tenecteplase was making an important difference in starting to improve perfusion in those patients. So I think Again, while some studies may be showing that for some large vessel strokes, you know, the sequential process of giving a thrombolytic followed by thrombectomy may not be that much better than thrombectomy alone, it is not yet borne out that that would be a reasonable thing to do. And I think in these cases, for the other successful thrombectomy studies, giving a thrombolytic up front, particularly for many of the patients who were transferred, I think was an important part of the reason that the patients had such good outcomes and improved in these studies, as it was starting to facilitate some reperfusion in those patients, which I think contributed to their good outcomes. So we consider stroke systems of care as an essential part of the chain of survival and chain of recovery for stroke patients. And these systems of care are evolving, and we have worked to organize pre-hospital emergency and in-hospital providers for many years to get the patients to the right place at the right time. As it stands based on a recent publication in Stroke, about 37% of the hospitals that are stroke centers are currently endovascular capable, and about 20% of the U.S. population is within 15 minutes of an endovascular capable stroke center. And I think many hospitals have an incentive to start to develop endovascular programs, but volume matters, and centers that do this more frequently can usually get reperfusion faster and more safely, as with most specialized procedures. So this is an area that is evolving, but I think given the technical aspects of reperfusion, the cerebral circulation, and the training aspects and the number of cases that are out there, I do believe we will continue to see specialization of centers for endovascular, and that this really won't go the way that things have gone for, say, ST elevation MI, where there is a broad pool of interventional cardiologists, even in relatively small hospitals, who can very quickly reperfuse coronary vessels. I do believe that given the number of strokes that are of a large vessel, there will need to be some degree of specialization and that this won't necessarily be something that will be as distributed as we have observed for STEMI. Because of this, it can be very important to balance patients across hospital. Getting IVTPA quickly is the biological thing that the brain cares about the most. So getting patients to stroke-ready hospitals, whether they're primary or secondary stroke centers first, is a very important step so that IVTPA can be initiated. There is ongoing work on pre-hospital triage, and this can be thought of in sort of two phases. In one phase, we ensure that people with abrupt neurologic deficits are taken to stroke centers in general. In the next phase, one can look to design systems of care where patients with the largest strokes or the strokes most likely to benefit from a thrombectomy or advanced care for intracerebral hemorrhage are preferentially shunted towards hospitals with advanced capabilities and who are endovascular capable. This is an evolving area and there is really no well-evaluated and well proven method to do this in the pre-hospital setting because it is quite complicated. Because of this, this reality of differing capabilities across hospitals, but 
a time pressure, there are, I think, great opportunities to continue to improve stroke systems of care and really improve the outcomes of individuals across a geographic area by getting them to the right place at the right time. I think some of that may be from moving larger strokes to specialized centers, but we haven't really figured out the exact best way to do it. Although some localities may have arrived at good ways of sorting the patients. One always has to be cautious of unintended consequences, whether you might overwhelm a system if too many patients uh, go to a limited number of hospitals. Another aspect is, as I talked about before, I think there are some centers that are, are very unlikely to have good access to endovascular care simply because of the volume of stroke in their community owing to the population density of parts of the United States. And I think in, in rural areas, there is not likely to be great access to endovascular proceduralists at a variety of hospitals. So I, the situation in those hospitals is going to be different and potentially very much dependent on having a protocol that involves uh, maybe a quick touch with a, a telestroke provider so that you can see quickly that this appears to be a large vessel occlusion and work to get that patient moving to the next hospital quickly. In our telestroke systems, this is obviously something that is quite on our mind, and we really try to think about that early in the course. But on the other hand, we know that the specialized centers often have limited resources in terms of number of beds and the amount of space within them. So we have to be cognizant of also finding patients who are not going to need a thrombectomy and getting those patients to other stroke centers that are very capable of doing the other evidence-based things that stroke centers do, such as good physical therapy, speech and language pathology, and rehabilitation. So follow-up question that one of the viewers of the original presentation had was, are you saying that it's possible and potentially beneficial to match patients' likely needs with a site of transfer? And if I was a naysayer, I would ask how you know that a patient won't need endovascular capability before you decide where to transfer. Is there any data to guide this strategy? In urban and suburban areas, patients often are at a crossroads between perhaps two capable hospitals. And those hospitals might have slightly different capabilities. Um, one hospital may be endovascular capable, and the other maybe is sometimes endovascularly capable, but maybe isn't always. And that can be a real challenge, I think, for developing a system in that because hospitals do have an incentive to, to take care of patients, if that, that is a hospital of preference or of locality for that patient, they do have an incentive to try to build up endovascular programs. But there may not be enough cases within a, a defined area to really support two programs. And again, if the hospitals are not under the same administrative oversight or from you know, separate companies or separate nonprofits, then there may be some challenges there that are not easily addressed through a system-wide triage process for that region. As such, one needs to be humble and think of putting the patients first when developing a protocol for transfer to ensure that for whatever the, the reasons patients' destinations are to whatever hospitals they go, that you can quickly identify them and then get them to a hospital capable of helping them with a thrombectomy as quickly as possible. So as emergency physicians, we do sit on the front line of many policy decisions. And 
This was an interesting study in JAMA Neurology by Sham, one of my collaborators at, is now the Chair of Neurology at the University of Chicago, where they looked at a change in the process of treating stroke within the city of Chicago and immediate surrounding areas. And in this policy change, they changed what Chicago EMS did when taking suspected stroke patients and required them to go to primary stroke centers. They did observe a pretty large increase in intravenous thrombolysis after making this change, which is not surprising since primary stroke centers have made better preparations to be ready to quickly and safely give intravenous thrombolysis. That being said, for some of the reasons I've mentioned before, I think similar policy changes for comprehensive stroke centers and thrombectomy-capable centers may be more challenging within dense regions like this because a relatively low proportion of all stroke patients end up needing a thrombectomy. So changing where patients go can be challenging. This has been dealt with successfully in some European nations where there's actually initial hospital bypass, but then repatriation of the patients even after an endovascular procedure, or even if the patient doesn't need an endovascular procedure. The sort of U.S. tradition of healthcare reimbursements is not particularly consistent with repatriation of patients to other health systems. So as it currently stands, this is encouraging that there was a major policy change that improved intravenous thrombolysis. And now we have a lot of hospitals that can do really well to get patients IVTPA both quickly and safely. But it may not be as easy to to solve the next problem, which means we need to be working on coming up with good protocols for the transfer of patients who are arriving at a a primary stroke center or a stroke-ready hospital treated with TPA, but do have a large vessel occlusion and need to move on to a thrombectomy place as soon as possible. So in some preliminary data from the AHRQ-funded eSpeed project, Sham Prabhakaran presented some data at the International Stroke Conference in 2020. And I was a co-author on this abstract and not yet published yet, but something that we will probably see in the literature soon, looking at major opportunities for reduction of door-in, door-out time for those primary hospitals needing to refer their patients for thrombectomy. And you can see these are all looking at time intervals from the door. So you can see door to triage is very quick. Door to CT is is pretty quick. Door to telestroke activation is quick. As a telestroke provider, I do like to get on um, relatively early, which which is good. We're seeing that in a lot of these Chicago hospitals represented in the study. But then, you know, you can see here, obviously, many of the comprehensive stroke centers have moved towards doing a CTA earlier in the course, whereas that's not been observed so far in this sampling frame that patients are getting a CTA about you know, 70 minutes after they've hit the door. And in certain places, I do not want the CTA to interfere with getting IVTPA quickly. But in many cases, these are not necessarily mutually exclusive steps and that if the right processes are in place to assess for risk factors for contrast nephropathy, then it is very plausible for people with large strokes to potentially get the CTA up front. So you can see that as as obviously a relatively low-hanging fruit for treatment. Again, 
there's this next step of transfer center contact. And I think this is something that for those of us at larger hospitals, we can think of making our own process for accepting transfers easier. You can see that telestroke was initiated early, but then there's also this this additional step of transfer center contact. And I think the degree to which those administrative hoops can be streamlined is just absolutely crucial in terms of, of getting patients move quickly. Then another bit of lag is awaiting the contact of the ambulance to transfer the patient out. And in many places, this may be from a, a different service that the initial service isn't available to do transport, like in, you know, possibly in a place like Chicago, you know, the city EMS agency isn't going to do intra-facility transfer so that you have to contact another hospital service. Ambulance time can matter because your local 911 responding EMS agency may not be the same agency as who will be handling intra-facility transfers. So calling that other ambulance agency relatively upfront may be crucial to get them there. The time of arrival of the ambulance then is a bit of time after that. And then overall, getting the patient ready and, and moving them out. So I think we, we see major opportunities here in terms of reducing these time thresholds. But if you are designing a protocol for your site, I think taking a look at this and thinking about how you can make these steps uh, take as, as little time as possible so that the patient can move more quickly. That's going to wrap up what we can talk about today. Just like many of our other subjects, there's so much more to dig into on this than you can fit into a single podcast. And these really are just to get some of the wheels turning and answer a couple of specific questions. But there's a lot more information on the ASAP Equal website as well as in the show notes if you are looking to develop or update the transfer protocol at your local institution. Go ahead and take a look. Thank you, Dr. Moyer, for being here. I've been your host, Dr. Jason Woods. You can find me on Twitter at jwoodsmd or via email at jasonwoodsmd at gmail.com. You can find the rest of our ASAP Equal podcast series at the Academic Life in Emergency Medicine website, www.aliem.com, or at the ASAP website, www.acep.org backslash E-Q-U-A-L.